All right, time to invite the kids to come on up front. All right, come on up, find somewhere to sit. All right, more room, come on up, guys. All right, good to see everyone this morning. Now, today we want to think about a word called evangelism. Can you say evangelism? Good. So, evangelism means the spreading of the gospel, right? Telling people who don't believe. So, we know the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for the saving of sinners, right? And all who come to faith in Jesus are saved from its sin from sin and its consequence, and they are given eternal life, right? So evangelism, telling the gospel, spreading the gospel, happens mainly in two ways. One, preaching, and two is personally, from one person to another, okay? So first is preaching, right? So every week we come to church, we preach from the Bible, right? And oftentimes included as part of that is the preaching of the message of Jesus dying on the cross for our sin and being raised to life again, right, to give us life. And so when this is done with the intent that those who do not yet believe that they can hear the gospel and respond in faith, that's evangelism. That's evangelistic, all right? So that's one way it happens. And the second way is personally, all right? One person can tell another person about Jesus, right? Even you guys as kids can do this, can't you? Where are some places that you can do evangelism? Where are some places that you can tell others about Jesus? Do you have any ideas? Where do you go? Maybe at school could be a place you could tell other people. Maybe if you're at the library, you can tell some friends there or playing. Go ahead. Family, yeah, family playing at the park, playing sports, right? If you're out for a walk and you're talking with people as you're out for a walk, those are all good places that you can evangelize, that you can share the gospel with others, right? Now, here's another question for us to think about. Why should we evangelize? Why should we share the gospel with others? What do you think? Any ideas? Why would we do that? Yeah, so we can share the Word of God so others can hear and believe, right? To bring God glory. God is glorified when we talk about His Word and we share the gospel. Through sharing the gospel, we can grow God's kingdom. We can bring glory to God. And it shows that we have a love for others, right? If we have a love for others, we want to tell them the gospel and share uh, with them about Jesus as well. So as Christians, as those who follow Jesus, we want our words and our actions to display the gospel so that others can believe and so that God is glorified in our words and actions, all right? So Pastor Jeremy's going to come and preach now. Do you think part of his preaching will be evangelistic? Do you think he'll tell us about the death and resurrection of Christ? Do you think that'll be in there somewhere? Yeah. Maybe. Let's listen and find out, okay? Thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. 
Uh, we are in the book of John, John chapter 17, in the gospel of John chapter 17, you're going the wrong way, Charlie. Is that Watson? Where's Nicole? Founder? All right. There you go. All right. Uh, John 17 is on page 903 in the Bibles, if you need one in front of you. This is the last of the four sermons we've been doing on kind of a major uh, aspect of our church's ministry that we've begun this fall, Neighborhood Small Groups. The second sessions of those is coming up this week, starting tonight for some of you. Um, the first sermon, I think, was the most important in it. It set the stage for why we're doing whatever we're doing here, including neighborhood small groups. Simply put, our goal is to do our bit to fulfill the Great Commission. And the Great Commission isn't just to make converts. It's to see sinners come to faith in Christ who are growing in Christ. That, that's the goal. We want to see people becoming more like Christ. So to put it negatively, we aren't here or doing what we're doing just to see more people come to our church and give more money and act like everybody's perfect. We actually want to be the kind of church where we have people who see who we are apart from Christ, we begin to hate our own sin and work together so that we can become more like him. And so a major initiative to see that happen in our lives is neighborhood small groups. Today I want to talk about how we're hoping that God uses neighborhood small groups to do the work of evangelism as a part of our evangelistic strategy. And by evangelism, Pastor Jeff explained it uh, rather plainly. We simply mean proclaiming the news of Jesus' death and resurrection to those who don't believe it so they could turn from their sin and put their hope in Jesus. That's it. That's what we hope neighborhood small groups does. Let me read John 17, pray, and then I just want to explain a little bit what's going on in this chapter before we jump into evangelism. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they uh, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, that, and they have kept your word." Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me, 
I have guarded them, and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even Though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, deal graciously with us, your people, now. Please send your Holy Spirit to open our eyes that we might behold the wonders of your law, because your statutes are a delight. Teach us to meditate on them that we may, might live in keeping them for the glory of your great name. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Christians sometimes see Jesus' work for us uh, in saving us, and we uh, just mainly talk about what he did in his death and resurrection, which is, of course, the focal point of it. That is, if any of us are ever going to be saved eternally, we must focus on Jesus' death and resurrection. But there's more that Jesus has done to save us. He lived a sinless life. So you're saved, not only by his death and resurrection, but because he lived sinlessly. And you're saved because he ascended to heaven. That's a part of his work for you. And what is he doing after ascending into heaven? Well, he's interceding for us. You heard that before? Right? We say this in even the Apostles' Creed. He's interceding for us. And then we'll be saved too when he returns. But today... What we're looking at is uh, a bit of Christ's intercession here. Interceding means praying, and he is praying to the Father for you and for me, for us, and for all saints. And how would Jesus pray if he was praying for us? Well, here we have it. Jesus is praying this prayer. This prayer is recorded that he prayed um, just before he was betrayed by one of his closest followers, unlawfully interrogated, crucified in our place for our sin. And so this prayer is on the eve of his death and resurrection for us. He is interceding for us already then. So another way to put it is, none of us would ever be saved unless Jesus was doing this for us. You and I would not be saved. We would not find eternal life. We would not end up seeing God in heaven unless Christ, who died in our place, was also continuing his work on our behalf and praying for us. And so what we're coming to now is a very central reality in Scripture. 
This is uh, as part of Jesus' work on your behalf as his death and resurrection. And so here we get to see this, and this is one of the most beautiful pieces of Scripture. It's really something. It's wondrous. I'd encourage you. I know some of you are doing the Bible reading program, which is excellent. Keep it up. But just take this chapter, maybe this afternoon if you've got some time, uh, and, and read it over and over. It is wondrous. Uh, it's one of those passages that's like a suitcase when you're going on vacation. You just can't pack enough into it. There's just so much packed in there that you've got to jump on it and try to get it shot. This is one of those passages. It's full. It's rich. Um, God's Word is beautiful. So what does Jesus pray for? Um, well, he is doing what all good shepherds do. He's praying for his people. Look at verse 9. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so some uh, would see in this chapter that Jesus, uh, in the verses 6 through 19, are praying mainly for the apostles, that is those uh, who were followers while he was on earth, and then in verses 20 to the end of the chapter, he turns and kind of prays for the church after the apostles, us, all Christians from all places, all times. And that's true. I don't think you can divide it up that neat and tidy as if he's only praying for them in the verses 6 to 20 and only praying for those after. But either way, he's praying for his people. Uh, and because our Lord has prayed this and is praying it, we can have complete confidence in our salvation. If you remember, just before the cross, Jesus was telling the disciples of his coming passion, and Peter kind of boastfully says, I'll go with you to death. doesn't matter what they do to me. I'm with you. And Jesus said, I'll tell you, betray me. And, 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 but then he said, but take heart. I, I've prayed for you. Right? Satan has decided to sift you, like we, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And so you and I are as dependent on Jesus as praying for us as we are on his dying for us. And so he's praying for us, even now. Isn't that a good thought? Isn't that awesome? That the God who took on flesh and took our sin to the cross and made an end of it didn't stop his work there. He didn't kind of sit back in the rocking chair and go, I've done my bit, now you keep up your end. Now he's praying for us. And, and he's praying for our eternal salvation here. You see that? He's praying that we would be with him to see his glory. Now, I'm not going to take this chapter and kind of preach through it um, in, in, in a normal kind of sermon. What I want to do is take this chapter and look at it through the lens of evangelism. What do we learn about evangelism in these verses? Um, evangelism has, in the last 40 years, in our kinds of church and kind of evangelical, conservative, baptistic kind of churches, evangelism, is, evangelism has kind of become the thing. Everything's about evangelism. Um, You have people in our churches who are pretty critical of 
churches like ours because we don't do enough evangelism. It's not a big enough focus. Why don't we do more altar calls? Why don't we have an evangelism program or an evangelism ministry? And, and, and that's because since the 70s or so, maybe in the 80s, we began to think that the point of everything is just getting people to make a commitment to Jesus. We've reduced everything in church ministry and everything in evangelism to just getting people, getting sinners to pray a prayer, getting them to make a commitment, getting them to um, raise a hand and pray a prayer. Uh, and because of that, we have, I, that's a good, uh, we want people to pray and receive Jesus, right? We, we do want to see people turn from their sin and turn to Jesus, but that understanding of evangelism has some uh, unhelpful parts to it, and then reducing everything in church to just evangelism is wrong as well. If you take the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. See, the, the point isn't just getting people to make a commitment. The point is seeing people become more like Jesus. Evangelism is just a step along the way towards discipleship. It's, it's an initial step. It's it's helping people to come to the point of seeing themselves before a holy God in sin and seeing their need for Jesus' death and resurrection. The point is to know God. Verse 3. What is the point of evangelism? What, what, why do we preach this gospel? What's it for? And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the point isn't just to get people to come to church. The point isn't just to get them to pray something or sign something. The point is that they could know God. The point is that they can enter into this awesome, intimate relationship with God in heaven. The point is for us to be brought to God as Father. You'll notice that Jesus begins and ends the prayer by calling on God as Father. Verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Verse 24, Father. The point is that we human beings who are separated from God, who's our creator because of our sin, can now come to know God as Father. And what's keeping many people from seeing their need from Christ is the problem of fatherhood in our world. We have bad fathers, we have absent fathers, and so they don't see God as father. They don't even want to sometimes admit that there is such a thing. But this is the point of why we do evangelism. It's not to get people just to make some kind of con commitment. I remember once in college, I was a part of a campus crusade, and I brought home uh, a campus crusade friend of mine uh, for the weekend, and my cousin Teddy was up. Ted, if you're listening to this, uh, forgive me. Uh, his name was Frank. Um, and Ted was my closest cousin growing up. We're still close. I love Teddy. Uh, Teddy was not a Christian. Uh, grew up in a pretty broken home. Uh, and so I was telling my buddy coming up that I'd really like to have, encourage him 
to evangelize my cousin, Teddy. Right? And I don't remember where we were. I think we were actually at one of the local bars. And my friend starts to evangelize Teddy. And my friend and Ted's life were very similar, both broken homes, parents of divorce, so on. So they had a lot in common, and they started talking, hitting off, and I'm just listening. And my friend comes to the point in the sales presentation where he says to Ted, your life isn't working. Why don't you just give Jesus a try? Just try him out. It worked for me. Just give Jesus a try. My cousin Teddy probably had a couple of drinks in him, and he got kind of teary-eyed, and he said, this better work. (laughs) This better work. (laughs) Right? And and we kind of think evangelism is that. We just kind of sell people on the benefits of Jesus. Just try this. Your life isn't working, just try Jesus. Jesus is in a pair of clothes, Jesus isn't a diet plan. Jesus isn't a productivity plan to just give a try. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He's not here to be tried out. He's here to be bowed before. He's here to be confessed our sin to and called upon to save us forever. He's here so that we might come to God as Father. He's not here to be tried out. It's it's entering into a covenantal relationship, not a handshake deal. That's why we think neighborhood small groups are so applicable for this, so good for this, because neighborhood small groups are all about relationships. It's a place where you can know and be known. And what better place to invite somebody who has not yet confessed Christ into so they can see the gospel and hear the gospel and not be pressured into a sales presentation. And so neighborhood small groups, especially as you develop some intimacy in these, would be an awesome opportunity for you just to invite your unsaved family members, your unsaved neighbors and coworkers and so on into. They can just see it. Because eternal life is knowing God. Well, what does that mean? Jesus says in verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What Jesus said here is, is actually very radical. He says that eternal life is that we may know God, who he names his Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, Jesus says eternal life. This is eternal life. He is assuming that those who he's talking to at one time did not have this eternal life. That should be shocking. We are born, body and soul. Our body will die. Our souls will exist forever. Jesus isn't here saying that they need eternal existence. Everyone has that. When you bring a new baby into the world, he or she will exist forever. They're they're not a spark that will one day go out. They are a, a human person created in God's image with an eternal soul. What, he, what Jesus is saying is that the problem is that we are bound because of sin to eternal destruction. We 
We are God-haters from birth. Eternal life, then, as Jesus defined it, is being transformed. It's a, it's a new birth from a God-hater to one who becomes a, a lover of God, from one who knows God as judge only, from one who knows God only at a far distance, from one who only knows God as somebody's a harsh taskmaster that you're trying to please to father. This is what Jesus means by knowing God. So the reality is we don't know him like that from birth, right? You don't, you aren't born knowing God like this. And this is the second shocker. Who is Jesus praying this for at this point? Who, who is hearing this? The disciples, and who are the disciples? These are Jewish men who grew up memorizing the Old Testament. <laughs> if anybody knew God... It's these guys. They attended synagogue. They went to synagogue school. Jesus qualifies what he means by that they may know God. He says, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So they know God. It's not the true God. Because they refuse the one sent by him. You know how this works, right? You're a parent. Parents often make the mistake, me included, of sending one child to tell another child something that you want the child to do. You do that as a parent? It's dumb, and we keep doing it. I'll do it again today. It never works. It never works. You always have to end up getting up and going because one kid is not going to listen to another kid. To reject the one sent is to reject the sender. It's to not know the sender. Since the Jews are rejecting Jesus sent by God, they were rejecting God. They didn't know God. If they had known God, they would have accepted the one sent by God. Right? And so if you reject the Son of God sent by God, you reject God. If you reject the one sent by the Father... You reject the Father. You don't know the Father. And that's what Jesus is telling these. That had to be utter sh- utterly shocking for these men to hear this. So you and I, though, Jesus is praying, can actually truly know God by knowing the Son. This, this murders agnosticism. Agnostics are those who are aren't sure we can know God. There isn't anything truly knowable about God. That's wrong, isn't it? You and I can actually know him. We've experienced it. We have turned from our sin to the living God and we know him. There's an intimacy with him as father that helps. He is there for us. He's present When you go through stuff in your life, he provides unexpectedly. He shows up. He doesn't leave. He gives you a church family to participate in this new life. And we can actually know him. And so this is intimacy here, isn't it? So so we must know him. And we must know him by knowing his son. 
So this gets down to helping us define evangelism. What is evangelism? It's all about the Son. You're not doing evangelism unless you're proclaiming the biblical truth about the Son. There's no way to the Father but through the Son. We have to get this straight because sometimes we mistake evangelism and evangelistic activity. It is evangelistic activity to invite a neighbor to your neighborhood small group. That's a great thing. But they must hear the gospel proclaimed. They must hear the truth of Jesus who was sent by the Father or they'll never know the Father. Pastor Jeff asked the kids, why would we evangelize? What's our answer? Because they're going to hell. Right? That's the answer. Because they do not know the Father, because they do not know the Son. And Jesus, in John chapter 3, says, those who reject the Son, God's wrath remains upon. Can you conceive of that? the people you know in your neighborhood, the people you go to work with, the people in your own family without Christ. And so God, only as judge, and because of sin, going to hell. And that's true. That's actually true. But Jesus says there is such a thing as eternal life. And it's a total change from being at enmity with God to knowing him. How does that happen? How does that happen? I want you to think medically here a second. Wrong diagnosis leads to wrong treatments. My father died of cancer. And his cancer in his salivary gland right here was first diagnosed as a clogged salivary gland. And the prescription for a clogged salivary gland was to suck on lemon drops. And it was discovered that lemon drops do nothing for cancer, if you weren't aware of this. Because if you diagnose it wrongly, you get a wrong treatment. Uh, this, this can be true of evangelism. Too often... We think evangelism as if the world is a big hospital with people sick with sin. We've got the wonder drug, and all we have to do is convince them to take it. As I said before, to try it. So the crux of the issue is your ability to be convincing, winsome. This is why the church has no room for anything like church discipline anymore. No room for telling the truth anymore. Because if we're going to get people to be saved, we have to get them to take the drug. And in order to get them to take a drug, medicine goes down better with a spoonful of sugar. Right? And so we just got to give sugar. We as Christians got to be nice. This is why people consistently say to me, you're, you're going to turn somebody off. You'll notice in the Bible that there is very little concern anywhere in Scripture for turning anyone off. In fact, it looks like often Jesus does all he can do to turn people off. <laughs> he says things and people leave. He's trying to get them to leave, it looks like. But if we understand evangelism of just trying to convince somebody to try a pill, then you're just going to be nice. You're just going to sugarcoat it. You're going to do nothing that ever offends. In studying for this message, uh, 
on evangelism. I was reading a chapter on evangelism in a book, and the author was relating an instance of their church where one of their elders came forward with uh, awful sin in his life. Okay? And when an elder or a pastor is in awful sin, the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 5 that he needs to be rebuked in front of the entire church. Okay? So they did this one Sunday morning. They, an elder got up and read a statement about the sin of the other elder in front of everybody. And in that Sunday, one of their church members, a young woman, a mother, had in, been inviting a neighbor woman with children many weeks, and she finally showed up that Sunday. Right? And so the woman who did the inviting was over here, and the other one was over there, and she looked across and saw her in horror as the elder is up there reading this disciplinary action about this other elder, even giving some of the specifics of the sin <laughs> on a Sunday morning. Talk about turning somebody off, right? So after the service, the pastor's in the back, and the, and the woman who was the guest made a beeline for him and came up and said, thank you. We've always wanted to be a church, part of a church where the truth is told and sin isn't hidden. Thank you. Right? But if, if we see evangelism as convincing somebody to take something good, we'll never do that. We don't have the faith for it. We don't have the faith for it. So, but notice how Jesus prays. Notice that Jesus isn't caring at all about whether or not we're turning people on or off. Look at verse 6. I came to manifest your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. You gave them to me. They have kept your word. What I want to get at here is evangelism isn't about convincing somebody to take something. Evangelism is the work of God of saving people that we just proclaim the gospel to. It's God's work. How Jesus prays here is so very offensive. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me. Yours they were, you gave them to me, and now they have kept your world. What is so hateful in this verse, the world hates this verse because of how exclusive Jesus is. The only way to the Father is through Jesus, right? There's no other way. There's no other way to eternal life but through faith in Jesus. Buddha won't work. Allah won't work. Materialism won't work. Wealth won't work. Political power won't work. Being a good moral person won't work. Jesus is utterly exclusive. The world hates this. That's why the world hates Christians so much. But that's not ex uh, offensive to us, is it? You're not offended that Jesus is the only way. That's why you're here. What's offensive in this verse to you? Just, just read it. Let, let the language be what it says. What is Jesus saying here? Who is in control of who comes to Jesus? God is. I have manifested your name to who? To the people you gave me. They were yours. You gave them to me. You'll notice in this language the verse of gift, of giving, or to put it in more common terms, grace. 
you gave, gave, gift, grace. This is grace language. This is grace. This is the father gifting the son. This is the father giving the son grace. To put it in language that you might understand. What is the father giving the son as a gift? What is the father gracing the son with? Us. Us. We are the father's gift to his son. Picture Christmas if you'd like. You're wrapped up under his tree. (laughs) We're, We're the gift. But this speaks not only to the exclusivity of Jesus, but to the sovereign control of the father. And this really makes Christians mad. There's no doctrine... I have, other than the doctrine of male and female in the Bible that I've found makes more Christians more angry than the doctrine of God's control over salvation. It really gets people fired up. Makes them angry. And now, I get it, and I, I was there too, because we want what we do to matter. We want our evangelistic efforts to matter. And we have this worldly carnal thinking that if God's in control, then we're not. But God's not only in control of who gets saved, God's in control of how they get saved, right? And how do they get saved? By him sending us. By him sending us. He, he prays in this chapter, not that he's going to take us out of the world, but that he's leaving in, us in the world to send us to the world. Right? God saves sinners by sending his people to them. He's not only sovereign of who he's giving to the Son, he's sovereign over how he, they're giving him to the Son through us preaching the gospel. So one of the things I wanted to bring this out for is that you can have confidence in preaching the gospel. If you think about what we're doing in evangelism, it's an utterly futile task. We are preaching a gospel that Paul calls foolishness of the world to people who are absolutely dead to it. If you go to the morgue and ask the person laying on the slab to get up and give you a drink of water, what will they do? Nothing. They won't even frown at you for being so stupid because they're dead. This is, this is what we are apart from God's grace. We are preaching the gospel of a God who became a human, <laughs> who lived without ever doing anything wrong, who died on a cross, and somehow magically takes our sin with him there, doesn't matter when you've been born or alive, and his death on there somehow reconciles you to God. And you have to preach that foolishness to people who have no ability to hear it. How is it ever going to work? Well, if God's in control of it, that's how. If God has people that he's chosen, that he's given to the Son, we have to go preach the gospel. And you'll notice, beginning in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, that is for the disciples, but, but for those who will believe in me through their word. He's preaching for all of the people, all of the billions of people, 
from the time after the apostles to the time of his second coming. And so we can have great confidence that our evangelism will be effective because God's in control of it. You have great confidence. That's what this doctrine is for. It's for confidence in evangelism. The early missionaries, if you take the perspectives class, the early missionaries all believed deeply in this truth of election. And, and they left to go preach the gospel to people who have never heard by packing their belongings in their own caskets because they knew by the, when they went to the field, they had months, maybe a couple of years to live. But because of this doctrine, they had confidence to go because they know God saves sinners. Do you have that kind of confidence in God's grace for your neighbors? Do you have that kind of confidence and God's saving grace for your children. Do you have this kind of confidence for your coworkers in God's saving power? So this is why we're trying to build these neighborhood small groups to a place where you can bring your neighbors to that's a little less threatening, more relational, and they can hear this gospel. Because the gospel is what saves. Lastly, and most affectionately, you'll see in the last few verses, Christ concludes his prayer by focusing on the love of God. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know, there's some confidence, right? The world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Let that stick in your brain. Love them even as you love me. Father, I I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. (laughs) Isn't that something? Look at verse 23 again. And loved them, how? What is Jesus going to use to help us understand how God loves us, how the Father loves us? Even as you loved me. Remember here, Jesus is praying for those who will come to faith in him in the millennial to come, in the hundreds and thousands of years to come because of the preaching of the gospel. He, he wants this to happen so that they might be one and one in God's love and how does the Father love us? As he's loved his own son. Why do we go and preach the gospel to our neighbors? that they may be one. They may know that the Father sent the Son and loved us even as he loves his own Son. Can you conceive of that? Love. Can there be any 
greater love than the love of God the Father for God the Son. And yet this is the exact same love to which we're loved. So the goal of evangelism is that this love may be known. That's it. What else do you need to hear? It's hell or the love of the Father. That's it. And so some of you here are going to hell. It's not a myth. And I am saying that, that you might fear God and turn to Him. And He is gracious. He does forgive sin and welcome all who confess His Son as Lord. And so why wouldn't you do that? Let's pray. Father, help us now in this to consider your great love and saving power. Praise that you've worked it in our lives and pray that you give us faith to invite others, to uh, care for others enough that they might come. And so, Father, please help us in this. Please, Father, save many. I pray that you'd add to our number often those being saved. Do it for your glory. Do it that the world may know the truth of your Son. Um, that the world may see your glory. So God, please help us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, the charge is, uh, in, in the book of Acts, we see this note at the end of chapter 2 that God was adding daily to their number being saved. And so my charge is for you to pray for that. Make that a prayer. Ask God to bring people who are Daily, if you have faith for that kind of thing, being saved to him. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to all of you who love our Lord Jesus with a love that's incorruptible. And amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord and I love you.